Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I am Doug Sweeney here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. And today on the show, we have a very special visitor. He's on campus this week, delivering sermons and lectures for our Go Global Missions Emphasis Week. This is always one of our favorite weeks in the fall semester at Beeson, as we hear from missiologists or experts in missions about what God is doing in our world. We're recording today's conversation on Tuesday, October 6th, but this episode is airing on October 27th which means that in just a few days, we'll celebrate Reformation Day, October 31, when we remember Martin Luther and the nailing of his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, which helped to launch the Protestant Reformation. If you've been to Beeson's Hodges Chapel, you know that it features a mural depicting this famous scene. We are a reformational school firmly committed to the solas of the Protestant Reformation. Sola gratia, grace alone. We're saved by grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. We're saved through faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone is our Savior and Lord. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. The Bible is the norm or the standard by which we norm our faith and practice. And soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. We give thanks to God this week for his servant Martin Luther and for all the men and women who've worked for reformation and renewal of the church since the 16th century. Now, Kristen, tell us more about who we have on the podcast today. Welcome, everyone, to the Beeson Podcast. We have as our guest Jackson Wu. Jackson is a missiologist, seminary professor in Asia, author, and one of the world's leading experts on the subject of honor, shame, and the gospel. Dr. Wu has authored three books, Saving God's Face, One Gospel for All Nations, and Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes, which we're going to talk uh, with him about today. And so, Dr. Wu, we are so pleased to have you as our guest, both for Go Global uh, Missions Emphasis Week and then on the Beeson podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm privileged. Thank you for the invite. Uh, We always like to begin with an introduction. So can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Um, How did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? I'm interested to know what drew you to Asia. And our listeners might pick up on that you have an English an American accent, I should say, and not an Asian accent. Can you tell us about why you use the pseudonym Jackson Wu? Absolutely. Great questions. Thank you. Well, I did not grow up in a Christian home whatsoever. Uh, I grew up in East Texas, just north of Houston. And uh, so, um, uh, you know, it's more traditional, you know, like everybody's a Christian because you believe that God exists kind of a thing. But I uh, started going to church uh, on an invite your friend to church day when I was like around eighth grade. And I went there and I saw all these cute girls in short skirts and they fed me donuts. And I said, well, I'm no dummy. I could be a big fish in a small pond. I'll keep coming to church. Uh, and really and truly, I just, uh, I like that. And after about two years, I actually started paying attention. 
And I read the book of James and I saw her that even the demons believe in one God and shudder. And I thought, well, I'm on the wrong team. I need to think through this. And uh, so I became a believer when I was around 15, grew pretty rapidly. And for me, missions was never something on my radar. I didn't, not growing up in Christian culture, all I knew about quote unquote professional ministry was the word preacher. So I said, well, I want to be a preacher someday. I mean, that's all I knew. And I just finished my master's degree in philosophy, and we were trying to look at what we were going to do next. We thought about campus ministry, and um, I just felt like, you know, I think we're supposed to go to China. I know that makes no sense. I just feel like that's where we're supposed to go. And and so we went in there and taught English for a few years, uh, and then uh, initially I did not embrace uh, Chinese culture. I uh, said basically over my dead body, will I ever go back to that country? Um, I was not, you know, I did not warm up to it immediately, you know, because mainland Chinese culture is not the same thing as a lot of, uh, you know, American, Asian American uh, culture. Uh, But the Lord gave me a change of heart and we uh, went back to East Asia and uh, worked, helped at first as a church planner and then started an underground seminary uh, for Chinese pastors. Uh, in East Asia. And then you asked me about my accent or lack thereof or whatnot. Uh, The name Jackson Wu is a pseudonym. Uh, Jackson is the family name. And uh, uh, Wu is obviously an Asian surname. And part of the thinking there was, uh, as my wife and I were talking, we wanted a name that reflected a lot of the perspective and values we are trying to bring to uh, our work. Because in everything that I, uh, you know, was writing and, and processing, I was in real in-depth dialogue with our Chinese brothers and sisters, and basically nothing that I would publish or speak or teach was not heavily influenced by and filtered through a lot of conversation of Chinese pastors and, and brothers and sisters. And so, uh, but a lot of them never had a good, because they were underground, so to speak, they didn't have any kind of voice. And I thought, you know, I want to honor that this is so much from them. And so uh, uh, I've come to find out that some people frown upon pseudonyms uh, and whatnot like that, but it started off as security reason, and then we wanted to honor them with the name. So that's, that's the background for it. Dr. Wu, we've already hinted to our listeners that you're an expert in missiology or missions. You're also an expert in honor and shame cultures. And surely some of our listeners already know what that means. But for those who don't, would you give us a little primer? What are honor and shame cultures and what difference does it make for us to think about those cultures and their differences from ours as we try to be faithful witnesses to the gospel cross-culturally? Well, uh, first off, I'd say uh, all cultures to some degree are honor and shame cultures. Uh, it's just a more of a matter of how it manifests. Uh, honor and shame cultures are the broad category terms. They're, they're not they're not all inclusive. They're just talking about tendencies within people's worldview and cultural perspective. And an honor shame perspective is often contrasted with a guilt innocence perspective or a fear power perspective. But the truth is all cultures have a combination of all of these uh, uh, lenses. An honor and shame uh, culture typically emphasizes a few things. Uh, tradition, you know, uh, also collective identity, group identity, uh, things like hierarchy and authority, position, social status, all matter, um, uh, understanding for one's reputation 
and status in society. It's just that people are, are more cognizant or, or cognizant or sensitive to these matters, which raises the question, well, what about in American culture in the West? Obviously, people in the West care about these things as well. Um, if you think about uh, social media, I mean, it's a bastion for honor, shame, things, cancel culture, so forth and so on. The American South um, is famously honor, shame oriented. Uh, sports culture, um, all you got to do is watch people watch SEC football. And you immediately, you know, will say, oh, okay, we won the championship or, you know, people acting like fools in the stands, <laughs> you know, because there's a sense of like collective honor and, and glory that comes along with that. So um, doxing, you know, where you shame people online. These are all different ways that it plays out here. Anybody who's been to junior high understands honor and shame culture. And when I was living in East Asia, I, basically what I noticed is, wait a minute, these are all the same things I've seen back in East Texas, but the rules are just slightly different. So, We wanted to talk to you, Dr. Wu, about your most recent book, Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes, Honor and Shame in Paul's Message and Mission, which was awarded a Christianity Today 2020 Book of the Year Award of Merit in the Biblical Studies category. So congratulations. That's a great honor. Um, talk to us about this book. Um, why did you write it? What What are you trying to accomplish with the book? And um, what's the story behind it? Well, thank you for bringing that up. I was very moved by Christianity's honor in that regard because one of my ambitions and desires has been to do whatever I can to help mesh missiology and biblical studies. Um, that's just always been my heartbeat. And yet I felt like there's been a huge chasm where a lot of biblical theologians aren't familiar with missiology and then missiologists don't know biblical studies. It's just a non-conversation. And I'm constantly trying to press those two together. So uh, at one level, that's what I was trying to do with that book. But uh, on another level, I wanted people to see why honor and shame really matter for the church and for interpreting scripture. And I understood that if I picked a book like Habakkuk or Hosea, and I started talking about honor and shame, people would be willing to give me that. Like, okay, sure, honor and shame is in there somewhere. But what about those, you know, the meaty books of Paul, law, and all, you know, all that sort of things. You know, people would basically start kind of picking and choosing what part of the Bible they want to emphasize. And so I said to myself, well, if I can win the argument with Romans to say, hey, honor shame matters for Romans, well, then we win the conversation. And so they see it matters for all sorts of areas of life and, and parts of scripture. And so uh, that was a big part of my goal. Um, and one of my, I say one lastly, is I really wanted people to see how the non-West has so much to contribute uh, to our understanding of scripture and to our understanding of uh, being a Christ follower. And so this is just one small contribution uh, in that effort. All right. So the obvious question next is, so how does honor and shame matter for reading Romans? Probably lots of people instinctively believe, well, it's the same Bible. And people from all over the world who are coming to faith in Christ are becoming part of the same family of God. What good does it do to emphasize cultural differences when it comes to reading the Bible? So with that stuff in mind, sort of lay it on us. Well, what, what good does it do to think about honor and shame even as we're trying to figure out what Paul's doing in Romans? Well, I would like to first off say, we're not trying to insert honor and shame into the text. 
honor and shame as various themes and related concepts are already there. All I'm suggesting is that let's have a more robust lens. Uh, you know, when we look at scripture and we look at it from this perspective, that perspective, this culture perspective, we're going to ask different questions. We're going to notice different things. Um, uh, as one scholar put it, a monocultural worldview is not as objective as a multicultural perspective that you can constantly, you know, challenge and, 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 and yourself and, and observe whatnot. So uh, that's, that's why I, I say it first. And I want, don't want to settle for what's merely true when scripture uh, I want to say, well, what else is there? Maybe I'm, I have true theology, but maybe I'm not understanding the emphasis that Paul's getting at in this section or that section. Um, and so one very simple example uh, is even on understanding of sin. In China, uh, as like here, sin is oftentimes understood uh, initially as uh, a crime, you know, committing it, breaking the law. You know, Chinese get that from Western missionaries who come over and say it's committing a crime. Well, the scripture is far more robust than understanding what sin is at its heart. And Romans 2, 23 and 24 is one of my favorite passages to go to and highlight this, um, where Paul says, those of you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And, and then, then it quotes from Isaiah talking about God's name is blasphemed. Well, the verb in the sentence is dishonor, and it's a prepositional phrase talking about breaking the law. The big idea there is that they're dishonoring God. And so then I started noticing, well, that the big like rant that Paul has in chapter one about then righteousness in the world, uh, it, there's no legal language there. It's all about dishonoring God, not giving honor to him, uh, becoming shameful, so forth and so on. And of course, the ever famous Romans 3.23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so you, you get a far more robust understanding of what sin is. Well, that would just be one example. Um, and so uh, like with, when I'd speak with, with Chinese, I would say sin is kind of like spitting in your father's face. And immediately you see them physically recoil back and go, oh, okay, now I get it. Whereas in a typical evangelistic kind of conversation with somebody, you talk about sin is breaking the law and they'd be like i've never killed anybody or robbed anybody they have no idea and because imagine if i said well you're a criminal you'd be like huh and that was the same effect how does honor and shame then influence paul's mission as as we read romans and then a second question to this is just as as you were reading romans what passages maybe were uh, that you saw or read differently thanks to your Asian brothers and sisters in the Lord who were opening your eyes to um, to these themes in the book of Romans? Um, easily, the book could have been titled Reading Romans with Collectivist Eyes because honor and shame is inextricably tied and twined with uh, collective identity, group identity. And so um, one of the things I noticed right away was that Paul kept using Jew and Greek, Jew, Greek kind of language, pairing those two, but he wasn't consistent. Uh, it just pop up and then go away. And then you talk about Jew, Gentile. And, and I'm like, what's going on here? And without getting into all the nitty nitty gritty details, what I saw Paul doing was he was using these honorific terms and word placement, whatnot, uh, because Greek was an honorific title, um, 
to basically compare the whole Jew-Gentile relationship to that of the Greek barbarian um, relationship that he talks about at the very beginning of Romans 1. And so to the barbarians, they, that was like the, like the non-Greek, the backwoods kind of people. And Paul wanted to get support to his mission to Spain. But these Roman Greeks, you know, they're not going to be all that motivated, maybe at all. You know, maybe even opposed the idea of going to Spain, talk to barbarians. And Paul basically turns the table and said, the same way you Greek, Roman Greeks look at the barbarians is, the, is like what the way the Jews uh, the people of Israel looked at non-Jews, Gentiles, and uh, you guys, there's a sense in which you say you guys were the, the second class and basically don't commit the same problem. You know, so, you know, at very broad strokes, uh, he uses the gospel and, and sees these social collective ident group identities uh, in play. It's not merely a what happens when I die. It's a who do I belong to, what communities do I belong to, and that's going to have an effect on how you understand the gospel, faith, and then, of course, mission, because it's not about ethnic identity. It's not about these uh, insider because I come from cultural Israel or whatever else. We've been talking around one of the big ideas in this book that you've done on Romans, uh, and that's the idea that everybody, no matter who you are, no matter what part of the world you're from, you come to the Bible from your own cultural background and with your own uh, cultural biases even. Uh, I think that can be difficult sometimes for US Americans to feel like it's true. Can you help us with that? I mean, what would be some examples of ways in which um, American Christians are coming to the Bible with their own cultural background, biases intact, and, and maybe missing some things? Uh, for example, uh, in the book of Romans as a result? Yeah, two things immediately come to mind is that one, uh, we come to the book of Romans thinking about law in the abstract and just right, wrong, God makes the law do it or don't do it. And forgetting the contextual factors of what goes into the law, which is translated Torah, um, where it's actually covenantal and uh, forming the identity of a people, a collective identity. Um, and whereas the covenant is a law, law is not necessarily covenant. And so we can oversimplify to a very, you know, superficial understanding of law. And then it's going to affect how we see the problem facing humanity, the problem Paul is facing. And then of course the solution well, along with that comes this idea of this in the individual. Uh, whereas the basic categories that Paul is dealing with are people from a group mindset. I am a, uh, a Jew, a Greek, a barbarian, or whatever. There's, you are not an individual. You are who you see yourself in these groups. And Paul is trying to say, hey, this, these social cultural group identities are not primary. And so if you're just looking at Romans from individualistic perspective, you're going to miss some of these group dynamics that are still at play in our lives. I see myself fundamentally as a... You know, Southern or as a Chinese person or as a woman or as a whatever categories you tend to use. Um, and we don't, because so Americans tend to look at identity as how I'm different than other people, whereas East Asian and ancient eyes is or how am I similar to others? Of course, in truth, it's a combination of the two. Um, but you regain some of this collective identity, this group identity, and how that forms and, and shapes us, this relational identity. Uh, you get a lot more of that in Romans, and that's going to uh, 
you know, affect uh, his whole argument and his thrust and also um, what you emphasize and what you don't emphasize to where, for example, Romans 7 oftentimes be the ultimate chapter of psychologizing the individual, you know, whereas I think there's a lot more going on. Uh, we recommend your book to our listeners. We're going to move away from uh, talking about the book as we finish up the podcast. So I just wanted to put in a plug to all of you listening uh, to find on Amazon or wherever you buy your books, Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes, Honor and Shame in Paul's Message and Mission. So thank you for sharing about your book. We look forward to reading it. And uh, I think what you have to say and what you bring to the American church is really important for us. So thank you for that. Earlier today in Hodges Chapel, you gave a talk on really a theology of mission. And so I wonder if you could give our listeners who were not in chapel a synopsis of what you shared with our community today. Sure, absolutely. Um, I really wanted to help people understand the logic, the divine logic of missions um, throughout the biblical story that goes beyond God loves people or, you know, something as true as that and go, what's going on? And one of the things I want to emphasize is that uh, the Abrahamic covenant is absolutely fundamental and pivotal to all the rest of scripture, such that the work of cross-cultural missions is utterly critical, utterly essential, and necessary, indispensable to the church's place in the, in the world. Um, I'm not trying to rank ministries like that ministry is more important than another. I'm simply saying it's just so integral that uh, it, it ought not be trivialized as, well, it's just one thing among others, because this is at the core of the argument. In the Abrahamic covenant, God identifies with Abraham and, uh, and making a promise with all humanity, that is, that he will bless all nations through him. And so if God does not keep that promise, then he would be a liar. He'd be unrighteous. Well, as sinners who dishonor him and live in ways unworthy, and we definitely don't, don't deserve that blessing. You know, we don't deserve to be part of his family. Well, so what's God to do? He's kind of in a dilemma here. Does he just, you know, bless the whole nations, welcome into his family, just to kind of ignore evil? Or uh, does he condemn and judge evildoers? So there's, there's this tension here. But yet God made this covenant and went through this self-maledictory oath. It's basically where the symbol of if I don't keep my promise, then, you know, I die. You know, that was kind of the ancient symbol there. And you go, what is going on? This is so scandalous. Well, in the cross, we see that Jesus makes it possible where God can keep his promise to Abraham and remain righteous. And so in, in that sense, Jesus dies for God's sake so that he is glorified as the promise keeper. That he is righteous. He brings about this uh, promise that was given to Abraham so long ago. And so uh, a proper theology mission recognizes the role of the Abrahamic covenant and the way that Jesus died to help God be righteous in keeping his promise. So let me get you to unpack that a teeny bit further, just for the sake of people who are listening to us now. We've got a lot of pastors who obviously are alums of Beeson and listen to our podcast and almost everybody who's listening to our podcast is involved in a local church. You've presented this fantastic sort of biblical theology of missions. 
how should that affect the ways in which we in our churches talk about missions, think about missions, and do missions, get involved in missions? Well, for one thing, um, I think that we verbally, at least, we think we need to distinguish missions from God's mission. And it's not because I'm trying to play semantics or prioritize missionaries over anything. It's just that it needs to be a conscientious decision to spotlight the importance of cross-cultural work so that we understand God wants to reach all the peoples, all of the world. And so at, at one simple level, there's that. Um, there's also a move now within the missional kind of thinking where it's like, uh, as long as you're reaching your community, you're okay. And I say, don't lose sight of God's concern for the nations. And what, let's be thinking intentionally about long-term strategic things we can do to reach those who don't have access to the gospel, who don't have a sustainable church. Um, so uh, it's a sense, it's a place of, does it have a priority uh, within the scope of the ministry that we're doing? Thank you so much for that. Um, we always like to end these podcasts by hearing just what God is doing in your life. What is he teaching you? Anything that might encourage or uh, just help our listeners in their daily walk with the Lord? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, it was a little over a year ago that we had to uh, come to the States because of various security concerns in East Asia. And both for us and, and our family, you know, for me and my family, it's, uh, it's been quite the cultural acclimation. And many people will say that, uh, you know, when you spent so much time in a cross-cultural context, you return to a foreign country as well, you know, because it's not the same country that, you know, I grew up in. And so <clears throat> um, I have, I'm part of a, a fantastic organization called Mission One. And they have uh, embraced me and uh, empowered me to do all sorts of things. But there's still a lot of learning and adapting. My kids oftentimes speak of uh, Americans as those Americans, you know, <laughs> you know, and they are like this. And and uh, because they feel like, you know, they're, they're you know, they are culturally Chinese. That's where they grew up. And, um, so anyhow, uh, that's an encouragement and a prayer request that, you know, we are making progress in that and that people have been very encouraging and affirming. We just last week, we found out that we need to stay out of um, a certain country in East Asia for several years that kind of, we officially found out. So there's been some grief in our family. Um, but we are so encouraged that uh, at the compassion that people have shown and the encouragement uh, and the door that God has opened for us to allow us to be, have ministry here. Um, so that's, that's really, we feel very taken care of by the Lord. Uh, the timing of drawing us back has just been perfect. Well, Beeson family, let's pray for Jackson Wu and his family. We are so grateful that he's with us this week. As we've said, he's a missionary. He's an expert in missions. He's an award-winning author. He's been a seminary professor. Jackson, thanks so much for being with us on the podcast today. And to all of those who are listening, uh, we love you. We're praying for you. Thanks for tuning in. Please keep Beeson in your prayers as you keep Jackson Wu and his family in your prayers. We'll see you next time. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. 
Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.